Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show, the Andrew Lawton Show, here on True North. What is it? Wednesday, May 31st. I, for whatever reason, had it in my mind that it might actually be June already, but I'm jumping the gun by, uh, well, certainly in Eastern time, eight hours. But it'll be uh, eight, uh, in eight hours, it'll be June, and then we can all celebrate the summering, the arrival of summer the ability to summer. We can all summer. You know what I mean. Uh, we have a big show planned today. Obviously, the big news this week, if you've been following True North or anywhere else, is that the UCP and Danielle Smith were elected in Alberta. I actually just got back yesterday from Calgary, where we were Monday night hosting True North's live election night show. So we'll uh, break down some of the bigger picture aspects of the campaign and what lies ahead for the UCP with Rebecca Schultz, a newly re-elected UCP MLA. She's also still in uh, cabinet as Minister of Municipal Affairs. She'll be dialing in in just a couple of minutes. And a little bit later on in the show, this story I love. And I'm going to try to do it with a straight face. But Jagmeet Singh says election interference is so bad and has gotten so bad under Justin Trudeau's watch that he is not going to pull his support from Justin Trudeau because he doesn't have confidence in an election. So Justin Trudeau gets to stay there because Jagmeet Singh doesn't trust the election. I mean, this is great. This is like in a level of election denialism that uh, the media should be pouncing over, but so far aren't. I want to start off, if you don't mind, by talking about something that came up on Friday's show. Now, on Friday, I had a, a fantastic discussion with Anita Krishna, who is a former director at Global News. She testified before the National Citizens Inquiry, and we talked on Friday about a, a range of subjects. We discussed media bias, among other things, and as is the nature when you have a long conversation with someone, you cover a lot of ground. And sometimes in the midst of it, I try to be very careful in listening to guests, but there was something that she said that the nuance of and the implications of didn't really, uh, wasn't really received by me or recognized in the moment. And I, I just want to be very careful about what I say here because I, I don't understand exactly or cannot speak exactly for what Anita Krishna was getting at and what point she was making. But we were talking about media and she mentioned in passing the Rothschild family, which is obviously a, a very wealthy uh, Jewish family that has uh, had tremendous amounts of success, but is also the subject of a great deal of conspiracy theories. And I, I had a few people, very thoughtful people that listen to the show, reach out to me and say that oftentimes Times they're very concerned about a lot of this whole grandiose Jews running the world conspiracy theory stuff that tends to come up when people mention these things. And again, I want to make very clear, I, I don't know what Anita was saying there, because my mind when we were talking about media bias was really on, I think, the ideological dimension of it. And what I've always thought which is the problem with media, which is not this you know, puppet master pulling the strings of what people are doing, but the hearts and minds of people that go into the media, what they want to cover, what they don't want to cover, and how they want to cover the stuff that they do. And, and that was where, if you heard the interview, I was trying to get the conversation, because that was what I thought was the most important point. And I actually said to Anita, I don't believe that the issue is people from the top down control 
controlling individual journalists. And I, I realize that if you are perhaps someone who believes in the conspiracy theories, you may think that, oh, well, someone's telling him to say this. No, it's not that at all. It's that I listen back to the show, and, and normally I would have pushed back on that, except it didn't really trigger what it should have in me in that moment. And, and I just wanted to say, because I know there are a great deal of uh, many people on the show who are from the Jewish community, and I, I'm a big supporter of Israel. I always have been. And I am a big uh, opponent of anti-Semitism. And uh, it didn't mean that to me, but I know it did to a lot of the people listening. And I, I apologize for that, that I didn't make that clearer when we were having the discussion and, and know that I very much resist and reject all of anti-Semitism that I see, which is why we call it out so often on the show. As recently as a couple of weeks ago in London, when some anti-Semitic comedian was performing in my neck of the woods. But I wanted to say that right up front, and thank you to those who, who did reach out about that. To get into the serious uh, stuff of the Alberta election, uh, we're going to be talking about the, uh, I, I want to say the sweep. And I, I have to be cautious with how we describe the win, because Danielle Smith obviously was victorious. The UCP won. They did lose seats from what they had going into it. But I think anyone could have said going into it that that was always going to be the case, that that was always going to happen. Jason Kenney in 2019 did so well that it was going to be very difficult for any UCP led by him or anyone else to rise to that same threshold. But all of that aside, let me just point out here that all of the people that are like sycophants for the NDP and for Rachel Notley and the media in the activist group, all of them are trying to spin a win as a loss. They're saying, oh, uh, Danielle Smith won, but uh, well, it wasn't really a win. And you got people that have said, yes, Rachel Notley lost, but her loss was really a win. And, and you know, even even Rachel Notley herself, we don't have the clip of it, but uh, Rachel Notley made that comment in her uh, remarks uh, when she gave the concession speech on Monday night about how she was forming the largest opposition in Alberta's history. Now, that means that you are the biggest loser in Alberta's history. That means that, I mean, there's an old Seinfeld bit about this, about silver medals, if I recall, where he said, you know, uh, if you get a silver medal of all the losers, you came first. You were, the, you were the best of the losers. So the largest opposition in Alberta's history means you have come the closest to winning, yet still lost which is not exactly an accomplishment that you should be proud of. But uh, Rachel Notley and Jagmeet Singh, birds of a feather, both of them have this tendency to lose elections and then talk about how, well, they lost and yeah, it sucked, but they, they really won. So I don't know if the knives are going to come out for Rachel Notley. I don't have any idea. I think one of the points that William Macbeth raised on our Monday night panel was how uh, there really isn't anyone else on deck. Like the NDP does not have a huge amount of bench strength here so it's not entirely clear uh, what it is that we can expect to see as far as some successor some heir apparent that's going to come in and try to save this party so the reason I bring all of that up is to say that Daniel Smith actually despite having only a few seats of a buffer between her and the NDP, between the UCP and the NDP, uh, still has a pretty clear and decisive mandate. And I think this is going to be a very interesting thing to see because it was a majority government from the get-go. It was always going to be a majority government. And now as she proceeds with this, she has essentially four years 
to enact her agenda, to enact the UCP agenda, assuming there isn't some uh, inside uh, turmoil like there was in the end under Jason Kenney. But I think this is where it's important to look forward because the campaign that the UCP ran uh, was really sticking to conservative strengths. It wasn't a campaign that was talking largely about sovereignty. It wasn't relitigating the COVID file. It was talking about economy. It was talking about jobs. It was talking about oil and gas. It was talking about all of these other things that are, are fairly, I don't want to say, well, no, let me, let's be real. They're safe conservative issues. These are things that the conservatives, generally speaking, can talk about in a broadly appealing way. Uh, she wasn't campaigning on the culture war, although obviously there are people that know her as that and expect her to be that. But one of the things that I think a lot of people are going to be looking for is what the path forward is. What's the plan here? So uh, it's my pleasure to welcome back the newly re-elected MLA for Calgary Shaw, also still in cabinet as Minister of Municipal Affairs, Rebecca Schultz. Rebecca, good to talk to you. Congratulations again, and thanks for coming on today. Hi, Andrew. Thank you so much. Uh, so obviously, Calgary was the the nail biter of the night. I mean, you saw uh, me upstage uh, there at the uh, Monday night event, uh, just withering away because it was going several hours, and you know some of your colleagues' ridings just kept flipping back and forth with with each poll. Why was Calgary so difficult for uh, your party and the NDP to really claim? And and why do you think it went the way it did with the NDP really picking up a fair bit of ground there? You know, and I said this on election night that the last four years have been a challenge. We ran on jobs economy pipeline and we faced uh, things that we just couldn't predict, like an oil price crash, an economic downturn, obviously COVID. And so there were some challenges there. But when I look at where Alberta is today versus where our province was after four years of the NDP, I think Albertans wanted certainty. I mean, the NDP and almost every media outlet asked me about um, the division in the campaign. And of course, the NDP ran a highly divisive campaign. It was negative. Uh, a lot of it was complete fear and misinformation, and they put a lot of money behind it, uh, as did some of the unions. And so that also made it a challenge. And we remain focused on our record, our four years in government, where Alberta was in terms of leading the nation in economic growth, jobs, opportunity, um, and a platform that built on our spring budget and committed to things like keeping communities safe, uh, again, making sure our economy is more diverse than ever before, balanced budgets, things that resonate with the vast majority of Albertans. And so that's why I think Ultimately, Albertans decided, look, we want a party that's going to give us something to vote for, uh, that has some optimism both in our province and its people. And that's why I do think that we saw a positive result overall just the other night. One of the things I, I found interesting to your point there is that there really were two campaigns in some ways. There was the policy-oriented campaign that you're talking about there, and there was also the, the divisiveness and the negativity and the, I think, the media obsessions over, you know, what Danielle said in a blog post, uh, you know, in, you know, 1942 or whatever. Uh, but it, it was interesting how much the, the message that your party put forward broke through with people, though, in some ways. I, I remember on the way back from the UCP election night party on Monday. So it was, you know, 12.30 a.m. I'm going to my hotel and the uh, driver of the Uber said, uh, thinking I was a UCP guy and not a, a journalist, uh, you know, I voted for you guys. And for the first time in my life, he said. And, and I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a journalist, but I'm still curious, why did you vote UCP? And he said, well, his 21-year-old daughter told him to. 
uh, because she believed that the UCP was the party that would guarantee economic security. And he said it was very moving. He said, you know, I was voting for my daughter's future. And that's the type of story when I share it that makes it sound like I'm campaigning for you guys. But but in reality, it was actually interesting because I had seen all of the CBC stuff and the Rachel Notley stuff. But here's a guy that really is, I think, your model voter in what you were trying to tell people. Yeah, and it really was a platform that focused on just the top of mind issues for everyday Albertans. And as conservatives who run on balanced budgets, we're, we're not the party that has a commitment for everybody, right? We, ha we have commitments, um, or I mean, like in terms of dollar amounts and the mm -hmm. big spending amounts, it's a commitment to maintain fiscal responsibility. You have to manage your finances in your household and we're gonna manage your tax dollars responsibly. We're gonna make sure we have a strong growing economy. Why? Because if we don't, we can't invest in our healthcare system, in our education system, in mental health and addictions and keeping communities safe, whether you live in Calgary, Edmonton or rural Alberta. These are things that matter to people. And I had a lot of people, I mean, we were door knocking. I think I finished door knocking on election night at 10 after seven. Like we went until the very end and I, I had people say, man, like I just had to stop watching the news through this campaign. Mm -hmm. I can't believe how negative it was. And so I, I was really encouraged to see that our message resonated. And we did have, you know, it wasn't just about because some people said, do you think it's a election campaign between two leaders? Is it, you know, two people? And I said, it's also two records. We have the NDP who had a record of four years in government that a lot of people just said, look, we can't afford to go back to that. Um, and we also had a record that also through a difficult time, we came out here in Alberta, a place of hope, optimism, opportunity, where more people are choosing to call our province home, record investments in healthcare and education and a balanced budget and a commitment to keep communities safe. Um, you know, I think people just felt like, look, I can, I can get behind that. And I think they started to see through you know, some of those ads, no, you're not going to have to pay to see a family doctor. Um, you know, you're not. Uh, Danielle Smith made that commitment. And I think people started to see through some of the negativity, too. I know when a government comes into uh, power, and I'm referring specifically to Danielle Smith, not the UCP, uh, through a leadership, there's a, there's a bit of nervousness in going too bold with policies because you didn't really receive a mandate from voters. And, and now you have received that mandate. So do you see there as being a, a more significant change of course in your government's priorities, or do you really see continuity from uh, what have been the priorities of the, the cabinet for the last eight months? Yeah, I'll say, you know, Danielle Smith, when she was elected leader of the United Conservatives, really put effort into bringing our caucus and our team together and maintaining that, you know, we are a big tent coalition of the center right. And I, I also think that when you look at our platform and you look at the top issues, look, whether you live in rural Alberta or you live in Calgary, community safety matters, making sure that there are police officers uh, and that, you know, when you're in an emergency, somebody's going to come and respond. EMS response times. Uh, this was a huge win for Danielle Smith, where, you know, she just reached out to paramedics and said, what is the barrier? Why are our response times uh, so long? And she took their feedback and made changes that they've been asking for for over a decade. And so I think when you look at what we're committing uh, to do, it is committing to keep our finances in order to grow the economy. Um, but to have a common sense approach to government, to reduce some of the barriers facing, whether it's businesses or Albertans, um, there's a very real commitment uh, to do that. And I think the changes she made in healthcare to bring down the surgical wait times, to bring down the EMS wait times, I think, my goodness, if we were able to do some of that in seven months, 
Um, that's a good sign for our healthcare system and, and for frontline healthcare workers, which is, you know, that's something top of mind for Albertans right now too, that you have a government that's willing to take a common sense approach, get rid of some of the bureaucracy and say, how do we make sure that we have a system that works for Albertans? Um, you know, I, I think that that also is a big difference between us and obviously the NDP, they grew red tape, they grew the bureaucracy. And so, of course, we're always going to have a different approach on that front. But we want to focus on addressing the problems of Albertans right across Alberta. I know that obviously with the losses in Calgary and, and in the case of Minister Madu in, in Edmonton, there are some uh, changes that are going to have to come about in cabinet. And I, I know you're not speaking for the premier right now on this, but do you have any kind of indications of, I'm not going to ask you who's going in what role, but, but of what sort of changes will be made and, and what the message will be with the next cabinet? Yeah, and I, I really don't have any insight into that. And Make your pitch. Tell me the spot you want. You know, I always say this, that when I first decided to run back in 2018, I told people like why I wanted to get into this is because I think that Albertans deserve government that knows that we're here to serve people, that we're here to serve our neighbors. I work for Albertans and my first and most important job is always as MLA and a local representative. So that is my top priority, but I'm also, of course, happy to serve wherever I'm needed or asked. Um, but yeah, I, I don't really make those predictions. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Well, I, I guess the one one thing I'll ask you in, in closing on, on this, obviously there was a, a leadership race, uh, you know, what, eight months ago that was uh, relatively divisive in some ways, but there was a fair bit of unity after. Again, I mean, a lot of the people that were running against uh, Daniel Smith, including yourself, ended up uh, being brought into cabinet and have been uh, very big champions. Do you see the party as being unified moving forward? Because even during the last campaign, there were some uh, people that nominally were conservative activists or called themselves conservative activists that are saying, I, you know, I, I can't get behind the UCP for, for whatever reason or another. You know, I do believe that our team is unified and I know media was saying, oh, you know, there's a couple of longtime UCP supporters that are going with the NDP. Those are people who weren't largely as supportive of the UCP after unity. When we went through the leadership race, I, I give Danielle Smith a lot of credit for bringing our team together. Um, and I would say this on the doors too, right? That she, you know, really wanted to see our team to come together. She took our feedback or our concerns because even during the leadership race, I think, um, you know, for the most part, the debates were about records or policy positions or things like that. And so when other leadership candidates had concerns about specific policies, um, Danielle Smith took that feedback and made changes to legislation, to policy approaches. And, you know, I, I think that that went a long way in building trust amongst our colleagues. And that's why, um, you know, I'm so optimistic in the unity of our team, because that also then creates unity amongst our party members as well. And I've seen that um, at events throughout the last couple of weeks. And uh, I think that that's what we can continue to see in the months and years to come. All right. Well, newly reelected Calgary Shaw MLA, Rebecca Shaw's Congratulations again. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much. Great to see you again, Andrew. All right. Thank you. Yeah, I saw uh, Rebecca very briefly when I was uh, up on the platform there, uh, but she was uh, chatting with Rachel and I was like, had to run to get a gl glass of water that I hadn't been able to get in like two hours because of how, night the go uh, how the night was going. So I didn't get a chance to say hello in person, but glad we could catch up with her tonight on this program. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, what we can expect moving forward. Chris Sims from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is going to be with us tomorrow on the show for a deep dive. So you won't want to miss that. 
But let's turn to federal politics for a second here. Uh, maybe a couple of seconds. I think we're going to go uh, a little bit longer on this one because I, I want to just preface this by saying that sometimes the jokes write themselves. I'm a big believer in comedy, and I like jokes, so in the interest of jokes, let's talk about Jugmeet Singh. Uh, he had this to say. How serious is your threat then to ask uh, David Johnson to step down as special rapporteur if you're not going to follow through with, with pulling the plug on the confidence and supply agreement? What we're doing is we're forcing this government, uh, with a vote, we're forcing Parliament to decide on whether or not Mr. Johnson should continue. I think that's a serious question. Given the clear appearance of bias, we are putting before Canadians that it is no longer useful to have Mr. Johnson in that position, given the clear appearance of bias. It's not going to restore confidence in the electoral system. So we're going to push for that. But I would, I would question the approach of creating the conditions for an election or triggering an election as not serious about protecting our democracy. If we want to protect our democracy, I would think the approach should be let's put in place new measures. What are the new steps to protect against foreign interference? What are the new steps that are going to be taken to ensure that nomination meetings aren't being influenced, that MPs aren't being influenced? I would like to see a series of steps being taken, and that to me would show some, some real seriousness about protecting our <laughs> electoral system. If it's just about a game to trigger an election, then sure, Mr. Polyev's approach is tear it all down, have an election. I actually don't think this is a game. I think this is serious. I want to make sure that there are steps in place, that there are recommendations being followed that actually reinforce our democracy. Because for me, I want to see people believe in voting. I want to see people confident in voting. And I want to restore Canadians' confidence in that. It's not about a game for me. I want to continue to fight for a public inquiry because it's the right thing to do to give Canadians the answers to questions. But I don't see how it's logical if the goal is to protect our democracy to then trigger an election when we're worried about foreign interference. That is logical. I've got to say, you know, I make fun of Canadian content and Bill C-11, but this up-and-coming stand-up comic is fantastic. Well, that was just hilarious right there. I, like, was choking on my drink. That's why you may have heard me coughing during that clip. I didn't know my microphone was turned on. But... Uh... <laughs> Like, like that again. You, you can't, you can't write jokes like that. Jagmeet Singh's position is that the federal government has failed to make Canada's elections secure, to resist China's interference in Canada's elections. He's so dedicated in this belief system that he wants to fire David Johnson. Great. He wants to call a public inquiry. Great. He wants to call on the federal government to take action to fix this mess. Great. What's the one thing you can do, Jagmeet Singh? to get the Liberals to do something. You can pull your support of the Liberals, but doing that would trigger an election. And he says, well, I don't know. We, uh, we, we can't, you know, the election, the, the system's too bad. We can't really do it. We've got to get the, the, the whole point. He's, he's rewarding Trudeau for doing the thing that he says he's mad at Trudeau for doing. Like, this is a level of incoherence that even Jugmeet Singh, has struggled to meet like he has never managed to be this incoherent i think that ten thousand dollar rolex is on his wrist just a little bit too tight it's cutting off the uh, blood flow to the rest of the body maybe those tailored suits were just not tailored properly it's squeezing something there but he's he's like unable to realize the absurdity of his point it i mean a point again such as it is is that the elections are so untrustworthy 
We have to keep the liberals in indefinitely. Can you imagine if Justin, you know what? Forget about Justin Trudeau. Imagine if Donald Trump said that. He, yeah, we've received uh, evidence of interference in our elections. The only way we can make sure everything is safe is if I just stay in office. No elections until we make sure we fixed it. So Jagmeet Singh is making the point that it is not safe or secure or democratic to have an election in Canada right now. Now, admittedly, interference is a problem, but the problem is not that we weren't aware of it. The problem is that we weren't communicating that from CSIS to the Liberals in a way that was resulting in action. So we have a lot of the safeguards we need. We are going to be more on guard for this. Candidates can be very aware of where their volunteers are coming from, where their endorsements are coming from. There are a few individual cases where we're certainly watching. Because uh, as we know, CSIS has been sitting on troves of information that it hasn't been sharing. I want to play a clip in just a moment of Aaron O'Toole making what ended up being a rather explosive speech in the House of Commons yesterday. I missed part of it. I saw it when I was waiting at the airport to, to catch my flight home, and then I rewatched it all later, and it was actually quite a bombshell. He revealed CSIS uh, as coming to him very recently, having been aware years ago of attempts to interfere with his work. And in doing so, only telling him now, only telling him now that this has become a full-blown scandal. Take a look at this little excerpt. Not only were the multiple threats against me and members of my parliamentary caucus not raised to me by the government or security agencies during the 43rd Parliament, but these serious threats were also not communicated to us through the Security and Intelligent Threats to Elections Task Force created by the government in the 43rd Parliament to safeguard our election. The threats identified against me by CSIS did not relate to one single event or one single accredited diplomat. Rather, the numerous threats identified to me provide proof of an ongoing campaign of foreign interference intended to disrupt my work as a member, but also to critically disrupt my work as leader of a large parliamentary caucus in a minority parliament. Threats, disruption, and interference of this scale actually violated the privilege of hundreds of members of this House. Look, I've had a lot of criticism about Aaron O'Toole and uh, actions he took when he was leader of the Conservatives, but I believe he is a thoughtful man, I believe he is a patriotic man, and I believe he takes democratic institutions very seriously. So he was revealing information in the House of Commons yesterday that some people have argued, and I, I don't know the ins and outs legally, that might legally have been challenging to do because of the security laws, but he did it because he believed in it and felt that Canadians needed to know and I'm very glad he did because he revealed how much we actually know about foreign interference already which is really the source of the scandal here I re restate this over and over again the news is not that China has been interfering in Canada's elections the news is that the government has turned a blind eye to it or otherwise not taken the interference seriously it's not new information it's not at all new information. And don't let anyone tell you it is. So when Trudeau gets up there and be like, oh, I was never briefed on this. I, yes, you were. You were absolutely briefed on most of this. And just because you got that whitewash of a report from David Johnston does not mean you weren't. And speaking of David Johnston, today in the House of Commons, I don't know what time it was, maybe like an hour ago, uh, members of Parliament voted in favor of getting rid 
of David Johnson. They voted for him to step down and have a public inquiry be called. The margin was 174 to 150. Among those voting against it was, of course, Justin Trudeau, but the NDP, the Conservatives, were, as well as the Bloc, voting in favor of this. And the reason that's important is because right now the NDP are keeping up with their pattern of being Canada's biggest cowards. They want to throw their grenades, throw their bombs over. Uh, they're pacifists. They want to throw their water balloons over. Uh, maybe water balloons aren't environmentally friendly, but you know what I mean. The NDP will say, oh, yes, we are taking a tough stand, and Trudeau has failed Canadians, and the Liberals and the Conservatives are all the same, uh, but, oh, we are not going to do anything about it. And it's great, because usually he hasn't had a reason. He's just been like, they're terrible, but we're not going to call an election. Now he's like, got the excuse that he's using. We're not going to have an election because the election's not safe. It's not safe to have the election. This is the uh, mighty Jugmeet Singh trying to justify why he has never, in all of his years in public office, been able to find something resembling a spine, which would be a lovely thing for Jugmeet Singh to have. Again, maybe you uh, forgo the next Rolex and just buy a spinal implant. I don't know if we have those things in Canada. Uh, maybe not in Alberta, because you can't get private health care there, the, uh, uh, ND despite the NDP's proclamations. But uh, my goodness, this is something that is only going to get worse. And Listen, I mean, Pierre Polyev and Jagmeet Singh do not agree on a lot. They aren't going to agree on taxes. They aren't going to agree on vaccine mandates. They aren't going to agree on a great many things that are going to be in their respective platforms. But when they can agree, it is important. like the importance of having elections that are free of interference. But Jagmeet Singh taking that stand doesn't mean anything if he's not prepared to accompany it with action, if he's not prepared to actually say, I believe so strongly about this that I am willing to let the government that has promised, all, promised me all these goodies that I'm willing to let it fall and I'm willing to go to voters. And if the liberals are that bad, if the liberals are that corrupt, then Jagmeet Singh should welcome the chance to go to voters and say, you know what? I am the guy that the Canadian left should vote for. I'm the guy that's going to take Canadian democracy seriously. I'm the guy that's going to be a principled voice for progress, socialism, whatever it is that he's standing for. I mean, he's not standing for anything. That's the point. But he's not doing that. And th that's precisely the problem here. So it's proof that all of this, you know, grand virtue signaling gesturing that he does is completely phony. It is completely phony, unlike the watch. And this is exactly what Canadians have to deal with here. So election, no election, it's not going to matter to Jagmeet Singh, except insofar as he doesn't think it's going to get any better. He knows that after the next election, he's probably done as leader. He's probably done as leader after the next loss. So he wants to keep this going as long as he possibly can. I've seen a few people online saying he's got to stay there just long enough to get his pension. Well, he's, I mean, he's going to be reelected as an MP. So he's going to get his MP pension regardless. Uh, let's just talk about what's in the best interest of the country, which as the uh, obvious point uh, shouldn't need to be restated, but is going to be restated right now. Uh, the NDP rarely in Canada's best interest, if ever. Uh, one thing before we go to end on a bit of a lighter note here, uh, you may remember a couple of months ago, there was some sporting event, I'm told, at which the singer... Julie Black decided to uh, ad-lib the national anthem and, you know, oh, Canada, our home and native land. No, 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 she didn't do that. She did our home on native land. And it made, uh, you know, all these people very happy, more people upset. Well, now Bonnie Crombie, who is the mayor of Mississauga, 
is trying to get the lyrics changed permanently from O Canada to uh, the instead of in our home and native land, she wants our home on native land. So uh, what started out as one jazz singer's dumb protest is now becoming an official policy position in the city of Mississauga. Now, I don't know if Mississauga is just going to, at its council meetings, do these weird lyrics on its own. Like maybe we're going to get to a point where we've reverted into like national anthem city states where every city just has its own national anthem. And if so, I'm going to like lobby my city to go back to in all thy son's command. I mean, if we can change lyrics, uh, means we can change them back to the good ones as well. Uh, that was on the NDP's uh, talking points, I'm sure. But now also Bonnie Crombie, who's a liberal, is pushing for the same thing. That does it for us for today. We'll be back tomorrow with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to the Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.